0: Hello all and warmest welcomes to another edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. North Wales's premier spare room based cat interfering true crime show that looks for those cases that are unfamiliar, often obscure, from the dark recesses that the UK and Ireland has to offer. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts who keep the show ticking over each time and keep me striving to do what I do. It's fabulous as ever having you here joining me today, and in these crazy times of face masks and social distancing, I hope that as you're listening in today, that you and yours are all good and you're all well. So following in the theme that we've developed here over time, we start with the episode thanks. Firstly, massive thanks going out to those who have gotten in touch concerning our previous episode, Stalker, and what an absolute scumbag we dealt with there Ray, with Anthony Burstoke hell-bent on causing misery and destruction in wasn't he and is undoubtedly today exactly where he needs to be i know he almost destroyed tracy's and lorraine was lucky to physically escape with her life but a person like bursto somebody who's that hell-bent well it would have ended with someone dying all the time wouldn't it so locked away is the best place for you bursto Thanks also are going out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show with shout outs going to new supporters David Holland, Megan Bowes, Caroline King, Anthony Kelly, Laura Volk, Regina, Vivia Bow, Julia Harper, Nina Ober, Lou Siddons, Katrina Sinclair Roberts, Michaela Ireland, Kevin Sheehan, Joanne Post, Louise Squires, Jennifer Cowles and plus Joanne Flubes who has increased her pledging. What can I say all, thank you so much for your kind and continuing support. You guys absolutely rule. Some of you should have received some stuff through the post by now I hope. If not it is sent, trust me. And I hope that you've all caught up with all of the unreleased bonus episodes of the show available to Patreoners. With number 31 coming very shortly. Now if you want to join these guys and get to hear tales such as Operation Magnesium, the horrors over the holidays, the beauty in the bikini, or angel from hell, Then, like daredevil leafing through a jazz pamphlet, it's not hard at all, and it costs well less than a pack of face masks does, because they're bloody scandalously priced them, aren't they, I've seen? If you wish to, there's the ever-present link in the episode show notes, wherever you get your podcasts from, or it's the show's title over on the Patreon site, look for the same show logo, and boom, Robert's your mother's brother, Quicker than a millennial bell end being offended by something, you can be there catching yourself some bonus enthusiast or even awaiting some stuff through the post if you like. Now I must also add a correction here because last time around on the show I did say that in an upcoming episode it's been penned by friend of the show Julia Crane, and of course it is, it's in the pipeline. But last time around I said that Julia's previous episode was the feathers and the golden flute from the previous series. And then, a la bruchette, as Delboy would say, I realised after Stalker had gone out that we've already had a great episode from Julia this series of the show, and it seems way back when now, long before bloody Napper and the apocalypse happened, the episode Horror at the Teddy Bear's Picnic. So apologies there, Julia, and her latest offering will be coming soon. Once again, folks, if there's a case that you think would be a great fit for a show episode, Maybe it's one that's always stuck with you, or perhaps it's a local one to you, whatever. If you want to research and write it up for a future show episode, be my guest. I'm always happy to hear from you guys. But you're stuck with me in the writing chair this time around. Sorry, folks. Now, last series, I did the first of what I decided would become a regular feature of each series going forward on Monsters of episode, and its turn has come around this episode and the next one, it turns out. We were up in Merseyside last series for a pair of real horror stories and this time around, for this one we find ourselves down in the county of Berkshire in South East England, one of the home counties. Now what can I say about Berkshire really? A couple of stats that I discovered is that it's of course home to Windsor Castle and the National Trust's oldest tree, the Anchorwick Yew, which is estimated to be 2,500 years old Elton John lives there, the Duchess of Cambridge, Ricky Gervais, and the one and only Chesney Hawks are from there. But top stat that I found this time around was that the Oakley Court Hotel in the county doubled as the home of Dr. Furter in the film version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. Great movie, love it. And it's Berkshire that's our focus for this tale. Now it's been more than 50 years since the events that make up the tale that I'm bringing this and the next episode took place. And whilst I was researching the case I discovered that even fairly recently there are still events that are considered so horrific and devastating that people from the area of the county concerned a small village called Beenum are still loath to talk about them today. The tale featured in this two part episode spans some 46 years in total and deals with a killer who i truly believe deserves the moniker monster for the appalling crimes featured real true horror both this and the following episode contain descriptions of crimes and events involving crimes against children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so as always please use your discretion whilst you're listening in guys bearing that in mind Please join the true crime enthusiasts for the first part of this series' Monsters Of episode, we look at a case I've entitled, The Beast of Beanham, Part 1. Situated just 51 miles from London, the Berkshire village of Beanham in South East England is a quiet and close-knit village, with parts of it seemingly almost untouched by modernisation. Indeed, the opening chapter of a recently written book entitled "Beenum: A History, begins Beenum has remained remarkably unchanged over the years. It's comforting to find many echoes of the past within the present parish and feel a real sense of continuity. So it's more suited to cricket matches and village fates. It's certainly nothing like where they filmed Robocop or anything. And you don't get asked to join at least two gangs by the time the bloody traffic lights have hit green. You know what I mean? Indeed, up until the mid 20th century, it had but one dark piece of history when a 17th century soldier murdered a barmaid at one of the local inns and was hanged for the crime. That was to change drastically, however, in the latter part of the 1960s. To those people who knew her, 17 year old Yolanda Waddington seemed to be the last type of girl who would go missing a happy and active teenager from a middle class military family who reportedly enjoyed horse riding, yachting and classic cars. Yolandi was just not the sort of girl to abandon stuff mysteriously and irresponsibly vanish, with all of the sinister implications that are associated with anyone who does. But vanish is exactly what Yolandi did. On Friday night in October 1966, she left her lodgings in the village to post a letter and to go and buy cigarettes from a local pub, The Six Bells, and was never seen alive again. After an unsatisfying six months working as a forecourt attendant in the Lander Road garage of her hometown of Newbury, Yolanda had, on October 22nd, only six days before her disappearance, began working as a living nanny to Christine the 18-month-old daughter of the Jagger family, wealthy landowners who lived in and ran Oakwood Farm, which is located about a mile from Beenham Village Centre, just off Beenham's Clay Lane. Come the night of Friday, October the 28th, 1966, Yolanda told her employers that she was going to walk into the village to post a letter that she'd written that morning to her boyfriend of a couple of months, 23-year-old Philip Swain, who she'd met while she'd been working at the Newbury garage. Now by this time it was 10.15pm, and Rosemary and Peter Jagger were not keen on Yolande walking alone into Beenham along a dark, wood-lined, mile-long farm track as it was. They tried to dissuade her from the journey, reminding her that any letter wouldn't go until the following morning as it was anyway, and when she asked what time the local pub, The Six Bells, closed. They told her a small lie and said that it habitually closed at 10pm, trying to discourage her from going out into the dark. However, she'd inherited a retired squadron leader father's headstrong streak, and telling the Jaggers that no worries, she fancied a breath of fresh evening air anyway, set off to walk the mile along to the post box and the pub. Knowing that Yolandi was ultimately a responsible young woman, and that she had a key to Oakwood Farm, the Jackets headed up to bed early, tired after a hard day's farming. Now on a Friday evening, most pubs are chock-a-busy, aren't they? And the Six Bells was no exception. As the central hub of the village, it was packed. It was filled with the working men and young women of the village, fresh pay packets burning a hole in their pockets, and attracted by the draw of having a pint at the end of a busy working week. I'm sure that most of us are the same, aren't we? Yolandi had posted a letter and walked into the bar just ten minutes before last orders were called to buy cigarettes, taking a pack of ten filter tipped ones and some matches. Before leaving, possibly because it had begun raining outside, Yolandi sat down and smoked one of these in the pub, although she didn't bother having a drink, perhaps not intending to stay that long. As there were so many in the pub at the time, in the scramble to buy last drinks, people's attentions were elsewhere and so no one could be sure exactly when Yolandi left or if anyone whom she left with the next morning the Saturday was Yolandi's day off but when Rosemary went to check upon her bringing her a cup of tea she was concerned to see that Yolandi's bed hadn't been slept in they were concerned because as we've said She'd only been in a job for six days and had not made any friends as such in the area, just mere nodding acquaintances, so she wasn't likely to have decided to stay at a friend's house who she'd met in the pub. After an hour or so, when she still didn't arrive back, they called Peter Swain to see if she'd stayed with him, but he hadn't seen her either, and then thinking that she may have perhaps gone back to Newbury to visit her parents, eventually got in touch with Yolandi's father battle of britain hero retired squadron leader william dyson waddington who shared their concerns when he told them that no yolandi hadn't come home with a sense of foreboding perhaps with echoes of the moore's murders and the discovery in january that year of the bodies of two small children up in Cannock chase in staffordshire which there's an episode about in series two of the show incidentally the Jaggers reported Yolande to police as a missing person. Now, as she'd only been missing for less than a day, her details were cursorily passed on to the oncoming evening shift. There were no mass search parties organised there and then. It was a complete different world back in the 1960s. The following morning, a farmhand of the Jaggers, Alfred Woodley, was fetching hay from a cowshed on the land belonging to Oakwood Farm. Just off Beenum's Clay Lane, when he discovered strewn about the 30 foot barn a number of items of clothing. Now, it wasn't unusual to find the odd pair of knickers abandoned in there, as the barn was a favoured place for local courting couples to use. But this was a bit more than that. There were a pair of jeans, shoes, a white headband, a bra, and a pair of knickers. Whoever the clothes belonged to must have completely stripped off in the October air. He was bemused enough to mention his discovery to the Jaggers who already concerned that Yolandi had now been missing for a day were even more alarmed when Rosemary recognised the shoes that Alfred held as being the ones Yolandi had been wearing on that Friday evening. Peter Jagger now again called police to report the find and gathering the other farmhands began a search of the Oakwood farmland. It was mere minutes after this search began that Peter Jagger himself made the horrific discovery. In a waterlogged ditch beside a gravel track some 20 yards or so from the rear of the cow shed, Peter discovered the naked body of Yolandi lying on her right side. A vicious looking wound could clearly be seen to the ribcage underneath the girl's left breast. She had her hands tied behind her back with a length of baling twine and her oatmeal coloured jumper was wrapped around her head, perhaps to muffle any screams. Not wanting to risk disturbing the scene any further, Peter Jagger once again went to fetch police as a matter of urgency and shortly afterwards, the first officers to respond, PC's Rodney Watson and Gary Deakin, arrived to secure the crime scene. After the body was photographed and moved, it was noticed that a similar length of twine as had been used to secure her hands behind her back was found wound tightly four times around her neck and had been used as a garrote. A post-mortem was later to show cause of death as ultimately being strangulation, but Yolandi had also been stabbed twice, once underneath the left breast and once in the back beneath the left shoulder blade. Determined to have been caused by a bladed object measuring between a half and three quarters of an inch in width, something like a pocket clasp knife. Now, there's some discrepancy through research as to whether Yolande had been raped or not. Some sources claim that yes, she had been, whilst others, and I found this to be predominantly, say that no, she hadn't. There were no actual signs of rape. Perhaps it was a consensual sexual encounter that had somehow gone horrendously wrong. She was cursorily identified at the scene by a former employer, and with that, police were dispatched to Newbury, where they had to break the tragic news to Yolandi's family, her parents and her two brothers. Yolanda's brother Giles, who was just eight years old at the time, recalled years later answering the door that Sunday morning to the figure of a uniformed police officer, and he remembered being fascinated yet fearful of the authority figure. The rest, he claimed, was a blur of a house full of people. It was standard practice at the time for a murder inquiry to have the assistance of Scotland Yard detectives, and the resulting investigation into Yolandi's murder was spearheaded by the fantastically named Detective Superintendent Wallace Virgo of the Yard's murder squad whether his name would be Wallace Libra today, that's anybody's guess. Immobilising the team of officers allocated to the inquiry, whilst they knocked on every door in the village and the surrounding areas, and every resident had been and was spoken to, at the same time, as much as possible about Yolandi's life was being checked. Places that she'd hang out, friends that she had, any current or former boyfriends. Perhaps there was something there that may jump out to show a possible motive or a possible suspect. her current boyfriend, Philip Swain, was interviewed and was almost immediately ruled out of the inquiry. He hadn't seen Yolande for more than a week due to a new job, but regardless, their relationship was nothing but good. The letter that she'd written him that she'd gone out to post on the night she died was intercepted by police and opened but its contents revealed nothing to suggest there were any problems whatsoever in their relationship. Philip could also be solidly alibied for the Friday evening anyway, and he was consequently ruled out of the investigation. Meanwhile, police had utilised service personnel from the US Air Force Base at nearby Greenham Common to search the crime scene and surrounding areas equipped with powerful metal detecting equipment. Aside from searching the entire route Yolandi would have taken from Oakwood Farm and back inch by inch, the 30-foot hay barn was also systematically emptied, and it soon became all but confirmed that this was where Yolandi had been killed. A packet of filter-tipped cigarettes, with one missing from it, was quickly found, and as the hay bales were removed, other items were periodically discovered, another pack of 10 cigarettes... Handful of loose change, a comb, a white earring and an empty white ICI fertiliser sack and all were seized and retained as evidence. But the most interesting find came two days after the body had been discovered when a pocket clasp knife with two blades the larger of which was determined to be of a similar width to that which had caused the stab wounds to Yolandi was found 40 yards from the ditch where her body lay unfortunately no discernible fingerprints could be gleaned from it as the inquest into Yolandi's death was opened on the 2nd of november by Newbury coroner Charles Hoyle the inquiry continued and when house to house inquiries established that a girl of Yolandi's description had been remembered just before closing time being in the six bells pub on the night of the murder buying cigarettes it tied in with the discoveries that had been made in the barn as the cigarettes that had been found were of the same brand that the pub sold. Yet despite all customers of the pub that Friday evening being rounded up and spoken to, no one was forthcoming about what time she'd left, or who she had left with. It prompted Detective Superintendent Virgo to tell reporters from the Newbury Weekly News, pressing home the urgency of the appeal. I am amazed no one has come forward to help us. She was in a crowded public house just before closing time, and it seems no one saw her. This is a thoroughly vicious murder, and it could happen again. But information and lines of inquiry, albeit only a few, did trickle in. Police learned that Yolandi at a short time before her death bought a box of expensive cigars that she'd told friends were for, a quote, an older male friend. But this promising line of inquiry ended when the cigars were found to have been simply bought for Philip Swain, though why she didn't just name a boyfriend to a friend wasn't known. Then reports came through of a grey-green Land Rover that was parked in the Six Bells car park that a girl, who was possibly Yolandi, had been seen sat in on the night of the murder. The owner of the vehicle was traced and was arrested and admitted that he had indeed let her sit in the vehicle to shelter from the rain, and once it had stopped, she had made her way off on foot back in the direction of Oakwood Farm. He hadn't come forward immediately for fear of becoming the prime suspect, and although this was remiss of him, the man was subsequently ruled out of the inquiry. Police also appealed for a man to come forward who was seen running along the A4 at Thiel towards Reading, which was about two miles from the murder scene, between 1.30 and 2am that Saturday morning. He'd been picked up by a passing motorist who gave him a lift as far as Redding, and who was able to describe the man as being unkempt in his early 20s, about 5 feet 6 inches tall, slim, light brown haired, and with a long straight nose. But this man never came forward, and he was never traced. Aside from these lines of inquiry and the usual appeals being made police went far and wide from Interpol getting involved to trace two old pairs who had formerly worked at Oakwood Farm and who had left just as Yolandia had got her job a Swedish girl named Sonja Arderson and a French girl named Elizabeth Roche to the investigation even reaching out to the world of pop music. Police had contacted management agents for British band The Who as they considered the possibility that the killer may be one of the fans or groupies of the band who followed them around the country, knowing that the Who had only a short time before the murder played a show in Newbury, but this again drew a blank. Now it shows just how many bases police were prepared to cover in their hunt for Yolandi's killer, wanting to look at every angle, but what they always kept coming back to was that the killer was somewhat closer to home, are local to the Beanham area, the location of the cowshed, as we've said, was a popular spot for local courting couples, but it was known only locally, and it was thought that the chances of a random stranger killer just being in the area waiting in the darkness, and Yolandi just encountering him were too astronomical to imagine, like Kanye West's chances of being president. you know so had Yolandi gone to the cowshed voluntarily with someone for sex perhaps someone she'd met in the pub that evening. The entire male population of Beenham had been spoken to in the first two weeks of the inquiry, however, and no one had jumped out as a stronger suspect than any other. No hockey mask wearing 10 foot tall superhuman odd one out or anything. So police came up with a groundbreaking idea. An examination of Yolandi's clothing had revealed that her sweater was heavily stained with blood, understandable with two stab wounds of course but forensic scientists had managed to determine that it didn't all belong to her there was blood of two different groups on the jumper Yolandi may have injured a killer as she fought for her life and unless it was from a nosebleed the killer may still have scratches or a visible cut upon his person that may be noticed or someone may remember someone having these therefore as the inquiry entered its third week a poster was issued by Berkshire Constabulary that was distributed to every household and business premises in the area and which read as follows. Murder, Yolandi Waddington To all males between the age of 16 and 50 in Beenham Voluntary blood sample You were asked to attend at Beanham Village Hall on either Wednesday 23rd of November between 6pm and 9pm or Sunday 27th of November between 10am and 3pm and give a sample of your blood to assist the police in their inquiries into the tragic death of this young girl Now below this was a photograph of the knife that had been recovered from nearby to the scene If you have any knowledge whatsoever of a knife similar to this please inform the Berkshire Constabulary, Newbury, telephone 815 or any police station or police officer now there's a picture of this post on the show's Instagram if you head over there. Have a look. Detective Superintendent Walter Virgo told reporters. We are using for the first time a new technique developed in the forensic laboratories of New Scotland Yard. We have taken over the village hall for this and two local doctors will be in attendance together with two nurses. This is the first time anything like this has been done in an investigation. The blood test will of course be entirely voluntary, but of course we do know who everyone is and where everyone lives in this rather small village. The test that was utilised came to be known at the time as a Pariah test. Two forensic scientists working for Scotland Yard had discovered that the two main constituents of blood, protein and enzymes had recognisable characteristics that varied. A sample as small as a pinhead of blood could be tested and broken down into 10 different separate classifications, which meant that even if they were confronted with 10 men of the same blood group as the killer, it may be possible to single one of these out as having the exact same variation as that on Yolandi's clothing. Good stuff eh? Now the more famous example of such a screening was of course to come 20 years later and was to lead to the arrest of Colin Pitchfork whose case we've also covered here on the show before way back when in the back catalogue of the first series of the show in the episode code of a killer but the beanham exercise was one of the first ever examples of such screening that had been attempted i didn't realize until researching fascinating stuff eh it was thought that the constant police presence in the village refusal to give a sample would draw suspicion and just the mere threat of a blood test may scare the killer and lead him to come forward and confess, but none were forthcoming. Over two days, every single man in the demographic volunteered and was tested, some 190 males in total, and the results were collated. One of the first men to volunteer a sample was a 19-year-old youth named David Burgess, a local resident who worked at a gravel pit on the other side of Beenham, and Burgess soon stood out from the others tested. He admitted to police that he'd been in the bar of the Six Bells that Friday evening where he'd left shortly after closing time and that he had also some time before lost a knife similar to the one police were appealing to Trace. But he was arrested when it came to police attention that on the day after the murder he'd been seen with scratch marks upon his face. Now these Burgess admitted but claimed that he'd received them as a result of falling into a bush Whilst he was walking drunkenly home from the pub that Friday evening. With no other grounds to hold him, and the fact that he'd voluntarily opted to give a blood sample, Burgess was released. Once the testing was complete, the results were taken to the Home Office Forensic Science Laboratories at nearby Aldermaston for analysis. This was still being undertaken when a week later, on the 30th of November 1966, 25 wreaths lined the Henley Road crematorium in Reading for Yolandi's packed funeral, where scores of her friends joined a shattered family in paying their last respects to the murdered girl. It took another couple of weeks for all testing to be completed, as it was a much more of a time-consuming process 50 years ago. But finally, a month after the process had begun, the testing and analysis was complete. Out of all of the men tested, Although a handful were close and had several matching characteristics, including David Burgess, none were found whose blood fully matched the blood grouping, and all of these were ruled out. Police were forced to admit to the press, I quote, Experiments on the blood samples taken have provided no evidence that the killer lives in Beenum. With all the possible lines of inquiry already having reached dead ends, they were again faithfully relooked at. But by March 1967, the investigation was wound down, with no further avenues of inquiry to go down. The evidence from the scene, Yolandi's clothing and personal effects, the items from the barn, including the plastic sack of ICI No. 2 British Fertiliser, were stored for future analysis, and the investigation into Yolandi's murder was marked inactive. The crime scene could no longer be re-examined in future either, for on Friday the 25th of August of the following year, the barn burned down, caused by an accidental petrol leak from a baling machine which had ignited, well, allegedly anyway. Apparently, the owner claimed that he'd planned to tear the barn down after that summer anyway, it being a constant unwelcome reminder of the murder, but the fire saved him the bother. It was a costly fire for some 2,000 bales were destroyed and 300 pounds worth of hay was lost in it which was a fair bit of wedge back in the day. Four months prior to this happening however on Thursday the 13th of April 1967 a coroner's jury delivered a verdict of willful murder by person or persons unknown in the death of Yolandi Waddington. Frightening for parents and locals and frustrating for police for it meant that a killer was still out there. Once again pressing this home and appealing for any information to be forthcoming Detective Superintendent Virgo told the press following the inquest verdict Unless this murderer is caught he may strike again and next time the victim may be a child. The late Mr Virgo at the very moment he said that could not know just how soon it would reveal how horrifyingly prophetic those words were. Now at this point, it had been almost six months since the murder of Yolandi Waddington, and within that time, the watchful eye of parents had slipped somewhat. Memories fade with time, and by the time of Yolandi's inquest verdict, the children of Benham were once again out playing and roaming free outdoors without constant supervision. Jacqueline Williams and Jeanette Wigmore were two such lively nine-year-old girls who were best friends and were inseparable. Jacqueline had only moved to the village in 1964 with her family her parents Terence and Pauline and younger sister Caroline and lived in a bungalow next to Beanham Garage which her father had taken over running alongside the garage in Redding's Weldale Street that the family had run for many years. Both garages still exist today Although both are today MOT testing stations. Now Terence Williams had been evacuated to Beenham during the Second World War and had loved the area so much that the first chance he got to, he jumped at the chance to live back there and moved the family to Beenham from the Reading suburb of Tilehurst. Jeanette and her family, meanwhile, her parents Anthony and Marion and her younger brother Paul, lived in one of the cottages attached to Park Farm only a short distance away on Webb's Lane, where Anthony was a farm worker. Jeanette was a happy child who did well academically, sang in the choir and attended Sunday school, and who harboured aspirations to be an air hostess. Both girls had become instant best friends when they'd met at the village school, and aside from being inseparable in school, they spent all of their evenings and weekends playing together. The evening of Monday the 17th of April 1967 was no exception to this, and when school had finished for the day, between 4 and 4.30pm, the two girls took out their bicycles, both of which were red and had been Christmas presents the year before, and along with Jacqueline's six-year-old sister Caroline, happily went off playing whatever flights of fancy children indulged in back before, YouTube and iPhones and all this TikTok bollocks, you know. At 5.15pm, Jeanette's father saw the girls from the cottage upstairs window on a path known locally as Switchbacks, which led off from Webbs Lane, heading towards a copse known as Daffodil Woods, bordering which was Admore Lane, a lane that adjoined the neighbouring village of Beenham Stocks, and that met Webbs Lane further up. Now set back off Admore Lane in that direction was a disused and partly water-filled gravel pit that provided an enticing, if not a dangerous and forbidden, adventure playground for the children of Beenum. And a school friend passing near in a car who knew Jeanette and Jacqueline, saw them on their bicycles at the corner where Webbs Lane and Admore Lane met, at 5.35pm, as though they were heading towards the pit. Shortly before 6 o'clock that evening, Caroline returned home in floods of tears, claiming that the two older girls had ridden off on their bikes without her as she was being comforted by her mother who promised that she would tell Jacqueline off for abandoning her when she arrived home Caroline had no way of knowing just how lucky she'd been but as dusk descended and there was no sign of Jacqueline coming home for a bollocking her parents contacted Jeanette's family at home thinking that the two girls might be there together But when Jeanette's parents told them no, there was no sign of the girls there, and they too were concerned because Jeanette had not come home either, both families now began to feel anxious, which rapidly descended into full-blown panic, as the horror of Yolandi's murder, less than a mile away the previous year, couldn't have been too far from their minds. By just after 7pm, the respective fathers of the two girls decided to go out and search the area for them, and as Terence looked around Beanham village itself, Anthony headed the opposite way. After looking around unsuccessfully for some time, he suddenly remembered hearing Jeanette talking previously about collecting frog spawn from the gravel pit ponds. Now knowing that the only pits in the area were those opposite the former Mayridge excavation works that Anthony's employer actually owned, he decided to head there in the fading light to have a look. Arriving there at about 8.20pm, Anthony searched around the top of the 18 acre site for some minutes, but could find no sign of the girls, and then, in the fading light, noticed a tin hut on a mound in the pit itself. Perhaps the girls were huddled in there. Making his way down into the pit and over to the hut, Anthony found nothing inside, but from the top of the mound a short distance away he did spot two red bicycles that had been abandoned now in what must have been unimaginable horror as he approached the bicycles Anthony became aware of a prone figure lying beyond them and he broke into a run stopping dead in his tracks when he realized from the clothing and the formerly long blonde hair that had only recently been cut short that the body lying in a pool of water was that of his daughter, Jeanette. I mean, take a second there, right? You can't even begin to imagine it, can you? Jeanette was lying face down, fully clothed, but without her shoes. These were later found between the bicycles and her body. And as Anthony did what any father would do, and picked her up in his arms, he found there was no response from his daughter and also found that his clothing became immediately saturated with blood. Carrying his daughter and placing her down on her back at the bottom of the bank a short distance away, Anthony immediately ran to get help. The first house that he came to near the top of Admore Lane would not answer the door to his cries. The household occupants, an elderly woman and her daughter, were fearful having only a few weeks before been robbed by masked intruders. But the next house did contact the police for the distraught man, and consoled him while he awaited their arrival, which occurred just a short time later. By this time, Terence Williams had organised a search party of the local villagers, and having the same idea as Anthony, had headed up to the gravel pits. He was met there by a shattered Anthony Wigmore, who told him that he'd discovered Jeanette, but of Jacqueline there was no sign. Only moments later, an ashen faced Terence Williams entered the Stocks pub in Beanham Stocks, the adjoining village, and told the crowded pub how Jeanette had been found dead and Jacqueline was still missing. So, staff and customers alike immediately left everything and joined in to search the 18 acre site. By 9pm, there were in excess of 50 locals and police searching the sealed off site. So many were there that several had been refused entry at the police cordon. The eighteen acres was painstakingly scoured, and at eleven thirty PM Inspector Kenneth Much, a police dog handler, discovered Jacqueline's body lying completely submerged in an eight foot wide pool of stagnant water, twelve inches deep, just one hundred and twenty yards from where Jeanette had been discovered. Now there are conflicting accounts as to how Jacqueline was discovered but these may have been lost in translation from source to source. I personally would be more inclined to believe Inspector Mutch's account that he was to later relay in court, as finding a murdered child is something that would tend to stick in your mind and you'd remember every detail of surely, so it's the account that I've chosen to use for this episode. What there is no discrepancy of is the cause of death of either girl, because Jacqueline was found with a skirt pulled up over her back and her underwear left lying around her ankles. She'd been forcibly drowned in the puddle whilst a killer had raped her there, forcing her head backwards into it as he'd gripped her throat, half strangling her. Jeanette, meanwhile, had not been raped, but had been stabbed three times. Two superficial wounds to the chest, but a two-inch deep wound to the throat that had punctured the jugular and the carotid artery. It was a wound that had bled profusely and according to the subsequent post-mortems that were carried out by the eminent professor Keith Simpson that would have proven fatal within a very short time. Now that's horror indeed, isn't it? eh? Poor, poor girls. Under the glare of headlights from four fire engines the scene was attended by Berkshire Chief Constable Thomas Hodgson and Assistant Chief Constable Richard Baker whilst operational command of the Berkshire Task Force was assigned to Detective Chief Superintendent Arthur Lawson, who would work in conjunction with Detective Superintendent William Marchant, who had been sent by Scotland Yard to oversee. Powerful arc lighting was installed to illuminate the macabre scene, and an examination began. From an examination of footprints and the distance between the two bodies, police theorised that Jeanette had been attacked first, where her father had found her. An area of blood-stained grass measuring 20 inches by 10, eight and a half feet from where her body lay initially, supported this theory. Jacqueline had seen this and had run for her life, but had been chased for 110 yards by a killer who had overpowered her, raped and half-strangled her, and then forcibly drowned her. Stuff of nightmares indeed, that isn't it, a bloody hellfire. Why kill either of the girls though I mean he could have just fled if he'd been disturbed unless the killer was a local man and was perhaps known to them both and he had to ensure their silence. Observing the layout of the land supported this theory as it was noticed that the gravel pit was obscured from open view and was accessible only by a narrow and twisting lane therefore the investigators theorised They worked on the assumption that this wasn't some opportunistic passing stranger. The killer was a local man who was familiar with the area and with the fact that children played around the pit as he possibly would have done himself some time before. It was an ideal place for a murder also as the landowner Tom Cooper was to describe later. He could not have chosen a better place. It is a 100% place for a murder. It's absolutely desolate up to 18 months ago we used to hire the pit out to a local man but he's practically abandoned it now it's a lonely spot and a lot of courting couples go there so in what had rapidly become a nightmare the two murders were inevitably linked with the murder of Yolandi Waddington six months before and from the very next morning a cloud of fear hung over what the press would soon refer to as the murder village Prayers for the two girls were held the next day in Beanham Village School, where they'd spent the previous day happily preparing log books for an upcoming school hosteling trip, and the girls' distraught classmates set to work creating a memorial portrait of Jeanette and Jacqueline that would ultimately hang in the children's corner of the village's Saint Mary's Church. Kids were from that moment back playing indoors or in front gardens, always supervised and escorted wherever they went. A combination of Berkshire Council and concerned parents funded a bus to ferry children who lived in the outlining areas to and from school, whilst parents from Beanham itself took it in turns to escort their own and neighbouring children to school. There wasn't one adult who didn't check that their children were safe in their beds when they were asleep either, convinced there was a now triple killer somewhere in their midst. Reportedly, the fear hung so much over the village that one lifelong resident of Benham, interviewed 35 years after the crimes, remembered how Beenham went from a nice friendly village where everybody knew everybody, to a place where, for years afterwards, her older sister insisted that her father tie her bedroom window shut with rope. That's the kind of fear that was instilled there. If you haven't lived through that, she said, you can't understand how everyone felt. It must be awful living under such a cloud of fear, mustn't it? Looking at your neighbours and thinking, is it one of you? And theorising that the same killer had struck again was not a massive jump. I mean, to be fair, if it didn't cross your mind, you'd be thick as shit, wouldn't you really? Whilst Detective Superintendent Marchand agreed that all three crimes could be connected, locals were convinced of it, and it provoked as much outrage as it did fear. One local mother told the local newspaper We suspected that this may happen again after Yolandi Waddington was found killed last October. Now we all fear for our children's lives and obviously a maniac is at large. Another said I'm willing to bet that the killer is a local man. As far as I'm concerned the blood tests did not eliminate the village from suspicion. Who's to say it's not a man over 50 or a couple of young louts? But the feeling in Beenham at the time was best summed up by a quote from one villager who didn't wish to be named, and who said I don't want to think that it's someone from the local area, but if it is, then they must get the bastard this time, and when they do, they should parade him naked through the streets, then hang him. Letters of sympathy began flooding to the families of the two girls as soon as news of the horrific killings broke across the country. And as house-to-house inquiries got underway for the second time in six months, the statements and blood samples that had been taken from all of the male residents of the two villages between the ages of 16 and 60 which had been taken during the hunt for Yolandi Waddington's killer were now re-examined for any possible clues. A hundred police officers worked alongside a team of 33 number one training regiment royal engineers using magnets and metal detectors to search the pit and surrounding areas for a possible discarded murder weapon and by three days after the murder an extra 40 officers had been drafted in from as far away as exeter to assist in the hunt a week after the murders all vehicles were stopped at roadblocks and the drivers questioned on all roads leading into House to house inquiries were extended to the nearby village of Bradfield and all 850 villagers from the Beanham and Beanham Stocks areas, both male and female, were asked to account for their movements after 5.30pm on the 17th of April. Crucially, between 5.30pm and 6.30pm, the timings in which the killings had happened that could be worked out between confirmed sightings and the pathology reports. Now as with Yolandi's case, several lines of inquiry did arise, from reports of several cars that police wished to trace, including a beige Hillman and a maroon Zephyr model, right through to information offered from a Coventry medium, who claimed to have had a glimpse of the killer whilst in a trance, and offered that the man police sought lived within an 8 mile radius of the village. All were followed up, but provided no further leads. Police also had to fend off crowds of onlookers who would travel up to the murder village, treating it as a day out and even coming from as far as Portsmouth for, I quote, to show the family where those two girls died. Some people are bloody absolute parasites, aren't they, some people? Really, really are. It prompted the vicar of St. Mary's, the Reverend Cyril Kelway, to take part in a televised appeal shortly after the murder, where he implored anyone with information to come forward but also chided those who were coming up for a gawp and requested politely that they leave the village and its inhabitants to grieve and to process what had happened in their own time now which they did do on sunday the 23rd of april a service of commemoration was held for the girls and a large percentage of being some 300 people attended St. Mary's Church, where Jeanette's father read the message that day. By the time the inquest had opened on the 28th of April in Newbury, people in the Beanham area and beyond were clamouring for the return of capital punishment. Now as we've said, the crimes of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley still horrify today, they still chill the blood to its core, don't they? They're just awful. And that's more than 50 years after they were committed, So just a couple of years after them, you can imagine the horror and the revulsion and how strong that was feeling back then, can't you? It was the same as the Cannock Chase murders that had occurred the year before, which I said uh, in an episode of the show from series 2. They caused revulsion and anger as well. And understandably, at the time, people wanted creatures who were responsible for such atrocity to swing. In fact, it's best summed up by this. I found during research for the episodes that a Scottish-based organization called the National Cleansing Crusade dispatched a member down to the Berkshire area in the wake of the two girls' murders, collecting signatures for a bring-back hanging petition, and was to return only a short time later with some 5,000 signatures supporting this. But by the time the crusade had headed back to Scotland, however, the investigation in Beamham. Had been all but closed. Less than three weeks after the crime, after five and a half thousand questionnaires had been completed, more than two thousand people spoken to, and some 1,350 statements taken throughout the investigation, police had a local man in custody charged with the girl's murders. He was well known throughout the village had been part of the onlookers who had approached to assist in the search for Jacqueline on the night of the murders only to be turned away from the sealed off gravel pit by police He'd been one of the first questioned also as he'd been a person of interest in the Yolandi Waddington investigation the previous year and just three days before his arrest he'd even bought Jacqueline's father a drink of consolation in the local pub His name? Well, we shall find out next time around and we'll crack right on with the story in the next episode as i decided to break this one down into a two-parter there's just quite a bit to this tale that i found through researching and by doing it this way i think it does the tale a bit more justice but it's a horrific tale or what this one isn't it eh there was me thinking that that shy talk napper had multi-parted me out for a while Pfft, not a bloody chance Because both parts of the Beast of Beenum are now finished, both have been recorded and are almost ready to go though, because I've worked like a blackpool donkey on the tail, part 2 will be coming in just a few days, which I hope that you can all join me for. So if you wish to get in touch concerning the episode, by all means please do, it's always great hearing from you guys, but as I say, there's a lot more to the tale coming in the next part. So perhaps hang fire until the full lot's been released to see what you think. So I won't go through the usual wrap up here. We'll save the waffling for the end of the next one. And on that note, I'm off like Ken Barlow after his vinegars now. And I think I'm going to snaffle a beer or a glass of wine because it's been that kind of week. I shall speak to you again very soon for part two. So until we do, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all and goodbye for now.